What is a painting? The image of the subject? The style of the artist? Hi, my name's Jean Dalmermuth, and as a paintings conservator, I see them as physical objects, how they're made, and everything that's happened to them since. Let me show you what I see, and you'll never look at a painting the same way again. When a painter makes a painting, they start with that first layer of the layer cake structure, the support. And so when a paintings conservator describes a painting, that's where we start too. Most often, that support is either a stretched canvas or a wooden panel. Rembrandt's Aristotle, Botticelli's Birth of Venus, and Frank Stella's Haines City are all on canvas. But with this first school of painting that I'll look at in depth, early Italian painters, painters generally started with a wooden panel, and that's what I'll concentrate on in this episode. The size and shape of a painting are determined by that support layer, and early Italian paintings come in many shapes and sizes, from large multi-paneled altarpieces to small devotional works, and those may be rectangular, but more often have arched or peaked tops. They may be constructed as crosses, or maybe circular, or can even be pieces of furniture, all made of wood. Human beings have used wood for forever, for building and for fuel and for art. Our ancestors used it in most of their furniture, tools, and vehicles, things that today might be made out of plastic or metal or composite materials like pressed board. It's still used for construction, but differently. When the Cathedral of Notre Dame was being built in Paris in the early 13th century, the entire roof was supported by massive wooden beams. Today, two-by-fours might be used to frame up a house. We don't always think about the properties of wood, even those properties that make it useful for us. But it's strong and durable. You can use wood to build a ship that can sail around the world, or a violin that can be played for centuries. But while it's strong, it's also lighter weight than, say, stone or metal. It can also be easily, relatively easily, cut into precise shapes, and pieces of wood can be fitted, glued, and nailed together, let's say, to build a chest of drawers. But it's also vulnerable to a number of different elements. It can be burned by fire, swollen by water, and eaten by a variety of insects and microorganisms. And wood has all of those properties because of what it is physically. And what it is, to point out the obvious, which I do a lot, is the body of a tree. That's obvious, yet kind of easy to forget. But when you're thinking about how wood works as a material to make things out of, if you always think about it as being from a tree, and thinking about how that tree would have grown and what the properties of a tree are, it makes a lot more sense. First of all, there are many different species of trees, tens of thousands of species all over the world, oaks and pines, palm trees and apple trees. And each of those species has different properties, different leaves, different shapes. They grow in different habitats at different rates. A tree grows not just for years or decades, but for centuries. Those beams in the roof of Notre Dame were three to four hundred years old when they were cut. Every year the tree grows, it gets bigger in diameter, adding a growth ring every year, as well as getting taller and branching out. The trunk of the tree holds it up, supporting all the other branches so that it has to be strong. It's also the passageway for water and nutrients from the ground to rise up to the leaves through many narrow tubes. And so you can think of it 
as being like a bundle of drinking straws, physically and chemically bound together, extending the whole height of the trunk. Those straws are very tough. They're made out of long molecules called cellulose, and they can bend in the wind and then return to shape to hold up the tree. While it was alive, the tree was part of an ecosystem, an interconnected web of many different kinds of plants, animals, and fungi. How a tree grows, how tall, how straight, how branched, is influenced by the geology of its location and the density of the forest and the climate during its lifetime. And for a fascinating look at the complexity of these worlds, I highly recommend the book The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wohlleben. The properties of wood from the tree will be influenced by all of those factors as well. So a tree may grow for centuries, but it takes humans only a short time, a few minutes to a few hours, to cut it down to be used for wood. To cut down the tree, you have to cut through those tough drinking straws with sharp tools like axes and saws. Once you've cut enough of them, the trunk isn't strong enough to hold up the tree, and it falls over, splintering the straws that haven't been cut. And people have been doing that on a massive scale for a very long time. There used to be vast, dense forests all over the world that simply aren't there anymore because the wood and the land was wanted for other purposes. By the time period of the early Italian school of painting, say about 1300, the supply of wood in Europe was already getting tight. So painters made use of the wood that was available, and in Tuscany that was often from a species of poplar tree, and there are a few different species, which grow relatively quickly, more quickly than, say, oaks, so it took less time for them to grow to a size that was useful. That also means that the wood is a bit softer and more porous than a species like oak. And I mention oak as a specific comparison because later on we'll look at northern European painters who did mostly paint on oak panels. Once you cut down the tree and cut off the size branches, you can use the trunk for wood for whatever you want, but you have to shape it into that form. The trunk is basically round, that is shaped like a column, a long cylinder with round ends. If you're making a polychrome sculpture and you wanted to carve that trunk into the shape of a human being, you already have kind of the right shape. But if, on the other hand, you want to create a flat panel for painting, you have to cut that trunk into planks. And there are different ways you can do that, and remembering that this is a three-dimensional object helps understand these different ways. If you look at the round end of the trunk, the cross section of it, you see a series of concentric rings alternating light and dark, and those are the growth rings that the tree added every year it grew. And you could draw lines from the center of those rings out to the bark, like the spokes of a wheel or the hands of a clock. And those are the radii of the circle, and one way to cut the trunk up is radially, meaning along those radii. Wood naturally wants to split in that direction, and by splitting, I mean pulling apart those drinking straws, breaking the chemical and physical bonds that hold them together, which is easier than cutting through the straws. When split radially, wood splits into a wedge shape like a piece of pie. But you don't really want a pie wedge, you want a flat plank with the front and back parallel to each other, while being thick enough to be dimensionally stable. The innermost part, the thin end of the wedge, the point of that pie wedge, is too thin, so that gets trimmed off. 
and then you're going to have to remove wood from the thicker part until it's the same thickness as the thinner part. And all of the wood you remove is basically wasted. One thing that's really noticeable when you're studying how things were made in previous centuries is how little was wasted, especially when compared to today. Clothing, for example, was remade or patched until it really couldn't be worn anymore, and then it was cut up for rags, and when those couldn't be used anymore, the rags were processed into paper. Up until the Industrial Revolution, right around 1800, it took so much time and effort to make things that they were used as much as possible. There was as little waste as possible. So woodworkers were trying to get as much out of the tree as they could. The poplar that was used in Tuscany is somewhat soft, and so panels made from it have to be relatively thick, maybe an inch and a half to two inches thick, to be strong enough to support themselves. And the thicker the panel needs to be, the more of that inner point of the pie wedge has to be cut off and ultimately wasted. So usually, these poplar panels are cut in a different way, which is called tangential. That's more like cutting them into a simple stack, all the same thickness. Then you only have to cut off and waste the curved ends, and so you get much more usable wood out of your tree. The only problem, which will come up in a later episode, is that tangentially cut planks aren't as dimensionally stable as radially cut ones. They have a tendency to warp and split because of the internal forces of how the tree grew. All of this cutting and shaping of wood is being done with hand tools, sometimes with the help of water-powered sawmills. Those tools include knives and planes and chisels, and a tool called an adze, which is like an axe with the head turned to 90 degrees, a head that's slightly curved so that it can be used to thin down a plank by cutting it out little scoops. Sometimes the back of panels have been left rough enough so that you can still see these tool marks, and because all of the tools were made by hand, and thus were slightly differently shaped from each other, they leave unique marks. And those can be used as clues when figuring out the history of the panel. Once you've made the plank, you'll notice that it's kind of striped. There are lines running the length of it, noticeable by being light and dark, and sometimes by texture as well. That's the grain of the wood, created by those drinking straws that ran the height of the tree, added to every year as growth rings. That grain can be really straight, but often has curves in it because the tree grew a bit curved. The plank may also have knots in it, dense spots which are where branches came out of the main trunk. With the planks, you can start to build the support of your painting, and that would likely have been done by a specialist carpenter. Let's imagine that what the carpenter is going to build is an altarpiece. Let's say it was commissioned for an important church. The contract drawn up between the painter and the patron would specify the subject, or likely subjects, to be depicted, because there are going to be many individual figures and scenes. The central scene is very likely the Madonna and Child, but could also be the coronation of the Virgin, or the crucifixion, or some other important scene or saint. Then to the left and right of this central scene, there would be standing saints, saints important to the patron, the church, or the city that the altarpiece would be in. Each saint is recognizable by their clothing and attributes, things they hold to distinguish them, a book they wrote, or a symbol of their martyrdom. For example, many Florentine altarpieces contain John the Baptist, a patron saint of the city who wears the rough, shaggy clothes of someone who lived in the wilderness. 
Along the bottom of the altarpiece, there may well have been a series of small narrative scenes depicting events in the lives of the saints standing above. And on the top, there may have been many smaller figures in pinnacles or roundels, other saints or angels or scenes. Generally, once the main panels of the altarpiece were assembled, molding, and sometimes arches or thin columns, were added to finish off the edges and create more three-dimensionality, something like a low-relief sculpture. On my website, I'll have images of altarpieces made that way, both one still intact and on the high altar of the Church of Santa Croce in Florence, and one that has been since cut up into many parts, most of which are in the Uffizi Galleries in Florence and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. That altarpiece originally stood on the high altar of the old Cathedral of Florence, which was named for Santa Reparata, so this is the Santa Reparata altarpiece painted by Bernardo Dotti in the first half of the 14th century. The central Madonna and child might look familiar. It's very like many of that painter's other Madonnas that we saw in the last episode. That altarpiece has been cut up into parts, and that's usually what we see today in museums, especially museums outside of Italy. Altarpieces may have been replaced after a century or two with more modern ones, and put in less important spots or even in storage. And then in the 18th and 19th centuries, many of the churches they were in were shut down. So, as strange as it may seem to us today, they were cut into smaller pieces and sold off into different collections. And when that happened, the information about where they originally came from was often lost. But later, art historians wanted to figuratively put the pieces back together. And one of the ways we can figure out what went with what is to read the mystery novel, looking at the clues of how the panels were constructed. And the most obvious clue is the grain of the wood. To make up the main panels, the central scene and standing saints, it makes the most sense to arrange the planks vertically, because those figures are vertical and often are in their own niches. Now, a plank can be as long as the tree was high, but the width is limited by the diameter of the tree it came from. So to make anything wider than that, you're going to have to join multiple planks side by side, which means both the grain of the wood and the joins in them run vertically. And sometimes either one of those, the grain or the joins, can split open a bit over time so that you have a fine crack running vertically. That's one way to tell just by looking which way the grain of the wood is running, to look for a long crack or maybe where that crack has been patched by a restorer. The texture, color, or gloss may be a bit different than the area to either side. An example of that is in the Annunciation altarpiece by Simone Martini, who was Sienese, not Florentine, but the painting today is in the Uffizi Galleries in Florence. If you look just in front of the angel, just to the right of their face, you can make out a vertical line, and that is likely a join between two planks that has shifted a bit. Originally, those planks were likely fixed together with glue, and that was often a milk-based glue called casein. They might also have been pinned together with short dowels set into the side edges, linking each plank to the next. This might have been further reinforced on the back with a plank running horizontally, a piece called a batten. If so, you might nail through both those layers, the panel itself and the batten, either from the front or the back. On the standing saints of the Santa Reparata altarpiece, there are short horizontal lumps 
breaking up the smooth surface. That is, they're under the original paint. Likely, those are caused by nails used in the construction, and either the wood or the nails have shifted a bit, creating these textural distortions. And I want to acknowledge my colleague and friend, Helen Spondi, who pointed this out to me when we visited there a while back. When you look at each of those standing saints, you see those same types of lumps at the same height, because they were all nailed to the horizontal batten on the back. And so now, even though that horizontal batten itself is gone, you can tell where it was. Another panel from that altarpiece is in the Metropolitan Museum, and actually the Met has three panels from it, but only one is usually on display in the galleries. That panel is from the predella, the line of narrative scenes running along the bottom of the altarpiece, and shows a scene from the life of Santa Reparata. These predella scenes were favorites of collectors. They're relatively small and show scenes with many characters in action rather than just static figures. You can see the wood of that panel directly because along the edges, the upper layers of the layer cake, the ground and the gold are missing. So here you can see the texture of those drinking straws and that the grain runs horizontally because when a carpenter is building the altarpiece, the predella is made out of a single plank running horizontally. And even if you couldn't see the edges of the panel, you could still see the direction of the grain because, like Simone Martini's Annunciation, there's a repaired crack, this run running horizontally at about the shoulder height of the figures. It's pretty well disguised, but again, this area is slightly different in texture, color, and gloss. The wood along the edges of that predella panel is exposed because the upper layers were removed when the altarpiece was cut up. And actually, what was removed was another layer of wood, narrow rounded strips of molding. You can tell that there was molding because there are a few nail holes along here where nails held the molding on, and because in the corners there are diagonal score marks which mark the ends of the pieces of molding where they fit together. How this would have worked is really clear on another panel from the Met, A Small Madonna and Child by Duccio, another Sienese artist. This is only about the size of a piece of notebook paper, a private devotional image, rather than a public altarpiece. It retains its original molding, and you can see, texturally, that the molding along the right and left has a vertical grain, the same as the flat part of the panel, while on the top and bottom, it runs horizontally. Where the pieces of molding meet in the corners, they're cut at 45 degrees angles and fit together neatly. Originally, that join was disguised by the upper layers, the ground and the gilding, but over the centuries, those have cracked and revealed the join between the different pieces of wood. So that predella panel from the Santa Reparata altarpiece in the Met has a horizontal grain. But we can learn even more about it, again by going beyond what you can see just in the gallery and doing some scientific examination, specifically X-radiography. That's one of the most important scientific tools used to study paintings, so it's worth thinking about how it works. We've probably all had X-radiography done, and technically the term for the imaging process is X-radiography, and the image it creates is an X-radiograph had them taken at the dentist or maybe of a broken bone, and probably have an image of what an X-radiograph looks like. It's black and white and is a kind of reverse shadow image. 
X-rays themselves are a form of electromagnetic radiation, the same phenomenon as visible light, ultraviolet radiation, microwaves, and radio waves. They're all different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, differing from each other in wavelength and thus energy. The shorter the wavelength, the higher the energy. Different parts of that spectrum behave differently with matter, and we can use them for different purposes. The human eye happens to be sensitive to a small portion of that phenomenon, and we call that visible light. Parts of it reflect off materials, and we interpret that as color. The eyes of other animals are sensitive to different parts of this spectrum, and so insects and birds can actually see ultraviolet light. X-rays have a higher energy and thus can go through materials. When we're doing X-radiography, X-rays are generated on one side of an object, your possibly broken bone or a painting, and go through it to the other side. Then there's some sort of detector on the other side of you or the painting, and that could be a film that's sensitive to X-rays or a digital image grabber that is. When the X-rays go through you or the painting, they darken that film or image grabber. And the more that goes through, the darker the image is. So where they're preferentially blocked by material that is dense to X-rays, those areas appear lighter. Essentially, that density, that radio opacity, is created by what material is there and how much of it there is. Elements from the periodic table of elements that are larger and heavier are more radio-dense. Lead or iron, for example, are more dense than lighter ones such as carbon or calcium. But a lot of lighter material can create the same total radio-density as less of a heavier material. So what you're getting is the sum total image of everything in between the X-ray generator and the X-ray detector. If it's your arm, you're getting the skin and the muscle and the bone all flattened out into a two-dimensional image, and that can be difficult to interpret, which is why there are radiologists. When you're doing X-radiography on a painting, the image you get is the sum total of all of the radio densities of all the materials in that painting, all of the layers of the layer cake at once, the support and the ground and the paint. And that can also be difficult to interpret, but can be very useful. Sometimes X-radiography is used to image layers of paint that aren't visible on the surface, most dramatically when an entirely different painting is found underneath. And for a fascinating example of that, I encourage you to listen to one of my favorite podcasts, Stuff About Things, an art history podcast, by my friend art historian Lindsay Sheedy. Episode 33.2, about a recently discovered self-portrait by Van Gogh, is an example of just such a use of radiography and a great story. So with X-radiography, you see the paint, but at the same time, the support. With a panel, you can see the knots in the wood, panel joins, and any nails or pegs that were used in construction. But how can X-radiography help study predella panels? Well, they were originally painted on one continuous plank, which had a continuous grain with a particular pattern, the pattern of the growth rings that varied from year to year, and the curvature that happened as the tree was growing. And that pattern can be imaged along with all of the other layers. 
And so if you have a group of predella panels that you think, based on subject and style, might come from the same altarpiece, you can x-ray each of them and then see if and how the grain lines up. You can see if they belong together and in what order they went. There might be gaps if the panels have been trimmed down or if some of the panels are missing. But that growth pattern, created by the life of the tree from which the wood comes, is still there. There are many other things we can learn by studying panels, by thinking about the wood and asking, what is this? If you've been enjoying this podcast, I'd be grateful if you took a moment to leave a review or to let other people know about it. The music you hear is 1600 in Vienna by Sujay Govindaraj, and I found it on Tribe of Noise. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.